Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him and did John and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw saw it, he addressed and he addressed the people, "Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers." glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead to this we are witness and his name by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. See you again. If you just came in, my name is Josiah. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, Before we begin, uh, Pastor Ryan, glad you're doing well, man. Uh, He he just had surgery on Thursday for, um, I won't be able to pronounce it. What's it called? Partial thyroidectomy. Okay. Um, so man, you're looking good, um, healing well, everything's good, man. You've been in a, you've been in our prayers, so, um, happy to see you here. Um, so we are continuing our series in the book of Acts, uh, with a a series called Witnesses. And, um, we are in chapter three, as we just read, and there's a couple things up front. This chapter, uh, something really unique, this chapter is really a parallel of the previous chapter, chapter two, in a couple different ways. Um, we see in chapter two where uh, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell, and there was this um, incredible event that gathered people around. And they were in awe, and they were in wonder, and they were like, what is happening, Right? And from there, Peter delivers a, a sermon to the spectators. Um, in similar fashion, in chapter 3, there's this incredible event. There's a man who's crippled from birth, and, uh, and he's healed, 
right? And then it, it gathers this crowd and people are like, what just happened? How is wonder and awe? And, and Peter delivers a sermon to the spectators, right? And then also in a very parallel fashion, uh, both of his sermons are very similar in content, which we'll, we'll see here. But I want to give us two things that we're going to walk through today um, and up front. And it is one, the word, or we'll call it the, the wonder. We'll start with the wonder. Um, is uh, the healing of this crippled man, uh, but not just the healing, but how he was healed and um, the response of the man. So we call this the wonder. And the second thing is the word, the preaching of God's word, starting with the word in, uh, in verses 12 through 15. So in your Bibles, turn there to that portion in chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. We're going to start here. Um, Peter's sermon is what we're looking at first. And his sermon actually continues through the end of chapter 3 where he's actually, he's cut off in, in, in the middle of his sermon by the Sadducees. Um, and him and John are both um, put into prison. We'll look at that next week. And remember, uh, in Peter's first sermon in chapter 2, he covered uh, these four things. He covered Jesus' life and ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation. Here that we're just about to read, are five exaltations of this Jesus. He lays out five exaltations of this Jesus. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to list them here. So these are found in verses 13 through 15. And, uh, and you can kind of pick them out as I list them out. The first one is, Peter calls him the long-awaited servant of the Lord. The long-awaited servant of the Lord. This is the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 52, coming to pass, where Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. That's the first one. The second one is he is glorified by God. God, meaning God, gave him the highest seat of authority in all of the universe. He is glorified by God the Father. The third thing he points out is that he is the holy and the righteous one. So he's not a murderer. He's not a blasphemer that he was accused of and being killed, right? But no, he is the holy and he is the righteous one, the only holy and righteous. Number four, he is the author of life. He's the co-creator of all the universe, all creation. But he's also the author of all spiritual life. And number five, he was raised by God from the dead. My pastor growing up used to say, the resurrection of Jesus was God's stamp of approval on him. That God approved of this man, that he is all that he claims to be. God raised him from the dead. But in the midst of this, there's also these four devastating indictments on the people of God. Right in the midst of these five exaltation are four indictments, and let's read them together. So start in verse 12 with me. We'll read it. It says, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, or in other words, your God, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus and here's the first indictment, whom you delivered, you delivered over. And here's the second, right in the same sentence, and denied in the presence of Pilate. You went beyond even the pagan, what the pagan Pilate wanted to do. 
When pagan Pilate was ready to release him, you denied him that. And you said, crucify him. You denied this man, God, Jesus. Number, or chapter four, or verse 14. You didn't deny just anyone. He says, you denied the holy and righteous one. That's the third indictment. You denied the holy and the righteous one. So, you decided to exchange, to trade out holiness, righteousness for a murderer. Let it be known, church, that this is, the, this is where denying gets us. Denying Jesus is suicidal. He says, you, want, you wanted this man dead so much that you decided it was better to have a murderer walking among your families and your children than to have this man live. Denying Jesus is suicidal. And the fourth indictment is, you killed the author of life. What a staggering oxymoron Peter says here. You killed the author of life. Not only is denying Jesus suicidal, it is anti-life in itself. Denying Jesus is denying life. The day Jesus was crucified was the most horrible sin the world has ever witnessed. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says this, the day on which human beings who wanted to be like gods kill the God who became human, the love that became person. I can see Peter with his finger pressed up against people of God's chest saying, you killed him. You killed this man. The words you killed, they pierce through every vain excuse that we have. Whether we killed Jesus because out of our hatred, or they killed him by their passivity towards him, they did nothing, you put him on the cross. And the same thing goes for us. The same sin that put Jesus on the cross of self-righteousness and, and pride and self-centeredness is the same sin that you and I have. And Jesus didn't die just for the people's sin there at that time, right? He died for your sin. He died for my sin. So we re- must remember that it is our sin that put him on the cross. It is our sin that killed Jesus. You killed the author of life. That's Peter's message to the crowd. Strong words. He's ruthless. He's ruthless to him, man. And he doesn't just leave him in his guilt. Next week we'll see, man, he offers good news. There's good news through this, right? But this is the content of his sermon here thus far and we look at. So that's the content of the word. Now let's look at the wonder. What happens in the wonder? The content of the wonder. This is found in verses 1 through 12. And then we'll also look at verse 16 as well. So go back to the beginning of the chapter. Start in verse 1. How did we get here, right? How did Peter get to this point where he's delivering this message to the crowd? Well, remember Peter and John are just simply walking up um, for their normal routine and prayer. It says they were walking up to the temple during the, the ninth hour. And then something amazing happens. Peter dispels that this amazing event was any kind of witchcraft or you know, his own um, um, godliness that was at work. No, this was the power of the risen Christ that he claims, right? And it was right in the middle of their ordinary 
day-to-day routine. I mean, think about this. Where, where did Jesus' miracles always take place? Always in the middle of his daily routine. His coming, his going, his resting, his eating, his celebrating with others. The day-to-day routine, and then right in the middle of it, and right in the middle of everyone else's day-to-day routine, he spoke to the needs that were present right there, right? And miraculous things happen. This is because the miraculous happens in the ordinary. The miraculous happens right in the middle of the ordinary life. This is what I want us to see this morning. That here in this, in this story, this was a normal practice for any God-fearing man or woman, right? Uh, in, in Jerusalem at the time, that they had these three hours of prayer. There was the third hour and the 9 a.m., the sixth hour at noon, and the ninth hour at 3 p.m., which is where John and Peter were now observing of the ninth hour. And they were heading up to the temple. And Jesus, all his disciples would have practiced this. All of his, they would have all observed this. And the text says something really interesting that I want to pull out. It says that this man, the crippled man, he was laid daily at the gate of the temple. Daily. So it's safe to assume that Peter and John, this wasn't their first encounter with this guy, right? If this was their daily routine, if this was his daily routine, they probably saw this guy quite often. They might have even known him by name. I guarantee they, they gave him money often. But there was also times they probably passed by him. But on this day, for some reason, it was different. We don't know what day it was. It probably wasn't immediately after Pentecost. It was days after. But we don't know exactly the time. But for whatever, whatever day it was, when the man with this congenital disease stretches out his hand and asks for money, God speaks and he quickens Peter and John's spirits And he says, look at this man. Look at this man. And I believe that for the first time, Peter and John see this man laying there. Yeah, they saw him every single day. But first time they see not just a cripple, but they see a man. They see a person. They see a soul. They look at him. They say, look at us. And the man looks back, right? Wanting to receive some money. There's people all around us every day, guys, that are needy, just as needy as this poor beggar on the side of the road. All around us every single day. Maybe you you, you see them every day and maybe you know them by name. But you do nothing to help them. And and I I don't say that to kind of heap on condemnation on you, but to ask you this question. Not if, but when God quickens your spirit and he stirs and he ignites your senses and opens your eyes to see the person and the soul and the man or the woman that is before you and the need that is present, will you obey? Will you step out and obey his leading? See, what the man asked for, he didn't get, right? But Peter and John offered what they had. And what they had was way better than silver or gold, right? What do you have to offer, church? What do you have to offer the world around you? I tell you and encourage you and promise you that you have nothing short of the fullness of the God-man Jesus, 
to offer the world around you. You have nothing short of the fullness of God in Christ. The long-awaited, servant-like author of life, slain by death, yet risen and holy and righteous and glorified Jesus, that's who you have to offer the world. That's who we offer. There's nothing greater. And, and know this, this Jesus that you offer, he cares deeper than the physical needs of those around him in the world. But he never disregards the physical needs. He never moves beyond the physical needs or bypasses them. He often addresses the physical needs first in order to move to the spiritual needs, but he never bypasses the physical needs. This is the Jesus that you offer the world. What happens, Peter? He doesn't simply just speak Jesus' name, but he, he stoops down and he grabs a hold of the man's outstretched hand like he saw Jesus do so many times before. And he lifts him up. He says, walk in the name of Jesus. And immediately, the Bible tells us, his feet and ankles were made strong. Immediately. And in verse 16, it tells us two things here um, and how this happens. And they almost at first seem contradictory. Verse 16, look at, look at it with me. In his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of all. So it says in the back half of verse 16 that it is faith that is through Jesus that has made this man um, have perfect health. It is through faith in Jesus that this man has received health. It is the faith to heal. And it, we don't have any indication that it was the crippled man's faith. It was Peter's faith because, you know, there's no indication that this man had faith before he was healed. So it is Peter's faith given by Jesus. Jesus gave the faith and Peter acted. Follow? But then right in the beginning of verse 16, it says something almost contradictory. contradictory. It was faith in Jesus' name. And in his name, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong. This means that it was the healing agent, the healing agent is the very name of Jesus. So John Piper he explains it this way. He says the point becomes this the faith Jesus gives to heal this uh, sorry, the faith Jesus gives to heal is effective because it is faith in the name of Jesus, and in fact, the name of Jesus is bringing about the healing. And we say, well, how, how so? How is that? Well, the name of Jesus is the reality of Jesus. The name of Jesus is the reality of Jesus. When Peter says, in the name of Jesus, he is in effect saying, this is not by me, but this is Jesus working in you. In the name of Jesus. And the man gets up, he walks he not just walks, but he leaps with joy. He begins to praise God. I wonder, does your faith in Jesus match the reality of Jesus? Does your faith and my faith, the name that we profess, is, is that really the name of Jesus? The name that we profess as Christians, is that really Jesus' name? Does it match the reality of Jesus? See, Jesus' name healed cripples. 
Jesus' name stood up for the broken and the oppressed. He challenged the oppressors of the broken. He had infinite mercy on those who were undeserving. Infinite mercy. And on and on and on and on and on. And when I think about the church in America, and I'll remove myself from that, I'm part of the church in America, you're part of the church in America. I ask, you know, where have we gone wrong? Where have we gone wrong? How have we misconstrued this life that Jesus has called us to so badly and so often? How have we misrepresented Jesus' name so poorly? How have we done this? And and the answer I come to every time is, is, I believe it's simple. We've lost our place of dependency upon this Jesus. We feel like we don't need Jesus. We don't need Jesus to do amazing things. We could put on a great service, man. We can attract people. We can do awesome stuff and then we'll win them to Jesus. That's not how Jesus has chosen to work in his church. We've lost our dependency and need for Jesus. You know, we, we flip it sometimes, right? Jesus calls us to, to, to sacrifice everything. To go in, into all of the world. Don't try to save your life, Right? Lose your life for my sake. But we flip it and we say, comfort first. I want comfortability. You know, Jesus says, deny yourself. Deny yourself. And we say, no, no, me first. Me first. I need to figure out me and get my life right and then everybody else. How do we flip it so often? Put yourself in this story. Put yourself in this story here. And no, not Peter. No, we immediately go to, how, how do we be more like Peter? That's a good question, and I mean, and, and it's true. Um, but today, like, put yourself as the lame, crippled beggar. The crippled beggar on the side of the road. Is that too far removed for you? Can you put yourself there? Jesus tells this parable. Turn on me to, uh, to Luke Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Luke, chapter 18. I'm going to start in verse 10. He tells this parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector. Jesus says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, Prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Observe the differences in, in the Bible of the miracles of Jesus and the miracles of the disciples. 
and how miracles were done. Jesus always spoke uh, as having the authority, the almighty power. He, ref- um, he did not hesitate to receive full honor that was due his name for what he has done. And disciples always deferred recognition, right, to Jesus. They refused to receive any honor except that which was, we are but his humble instruments. And this shows us that Jesus was equal with God and that his disciples were humble, sinful, weak, and needy men and women. Matthew Henry says, useful men are humble men. And that's, that's a very, in, in the most broadest sense of the word men, men, women, all humankind, humble men, or useful men are humble men. What's Jesus' uh, his first words on the Sermon on the Mount to the, to the crowd that's recorded in Scripture for us? Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the what? Poor in spirit, for theirs is what? kingdom of heaven. There's the poor in spirit is the kingdom of heaven. See, we're all the poor. We're all, none of us exempt, are the poor, lame beggar. All of us have this congenital, congenital disease called sin. And it's lamed us. And the spirit of God says, look at us. Look at us. And he opens our eyes to see the work of Jesus. And we're startled immediately to see that the Father's gaze is actually directly pointed at us. And it's fixed upon us. And Jesus stoops down lowly, low. And he brings us up out of our misery. He makes us strong. He makes us whole. And we're filled with this joy that's inexpressible. And the joy permeates all arenas of our life. And it is the joy that gives us a boldness to proclaim the name of Jesus in power to a watching world. This is how the wonder and the the word work together. This is the relationship of the wonder and the word working together. What we see here, again, just like chapter 2, where these events that cause this wonder in the people to lead to the preaching of God's word. And that's because the wonder attracts people to the word of God. But it not only attracts people to the word of God, it attests to the word of God. The word of God spoken is lived out in and through the church of the incarnate God. The word, Jesus. It is the testimony of the church. It is its life. It is its practice. It's its daily routine that attests to the written pages on this book. It's what we do that attests to what is written here. God could have chosen any means he wanted to attract people to himself. He could, have, he could have used the worldly means around us, right? To create wonder and awe in people, but he didn't. He chose instead to use supernatural and unworldly to create wonder and awe. My prayer, church, is that we would see the gifts of the Spirit that are namely spoken about in 1 Corinthians 12, poured out on a church, working actively in our church, both when we gather and when we leave. In every arena of our life, we would see that these are gifts of God. That these are gifts of God for his people to be able to point a watching world to himself, to create wonder and awe and to attract people in to hear the word of God proclaimed. 
And for the record, yes, I do believe that the gift of healing is still for today. That God still heals people. And why we don't see it often is I think we just don't think we need the healing. We don't have faith to believe that this is something that is necessary for us. But God wants to do it. I assure you God wants to do it in his church. So in response, first question to all of us, right? To everybody here. Have you experienced Jesus? Have you experienced this Jesus? And maybe you're here and you're like, you could say, no, honestly, no. I, I've never experienced that Jesus. Well, guess what? Today's the day of salvation. Today you can. Today you can experience the power of God in and through his son. This is how God has chosen to reveal his power ultimately is through Jesus. You can experience the transformation of Jesus in your life where you are on a road of self-destruction, whether you want to call it that or realize that it's that or not. It's a road of, of just of, 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 of building your own kingdom and of self-centeredness and of self-righteousness and everything that I can do and what I can amount to. And God can turn you and he can point you on a path of life. The author of life. A road that actually leads to eternal life. That's the transformation of Jesus. And then those of you who have experienced this Jesus, you have experienced the power of God in Christ. Can you see the miraculous in the ordinary of your life? Can you see the miraculous in the ordinary of your life? What I mean is that do you see every opportunity of every, every moment of every day as an opportunity for God to work in and through you to point people to him? That there are opportunities for the miraculous to happen. If not, is it because you haven't humbled yourself to Jesus? Humbled yourself and, and said, Jesus, I need you. Maybe it's been a long time since you've even said those words. And maybe today the first thing that needs to happen is just confession. It's just a confession of, Jesus, I confess that I have not acted as though I needed you. And in fact, I've done the exact opposite. I've acted like I had it all together. But I can look at my life and I can see that there's actually no pattern of me pointing anybody to Christ. I'm pointing people to me. I'm pointing people to man-made stuff. But I need to point them to something that's otherly, something that's apart from me. You are the holy and the righteous one. You are the author of life. Begin with confession this morning. Just confess it. Maybe it's confession not just to God, but to others before God. Maybe you need to confess sin to others today. Listen, this isn't just some kind of event where it's inappropriate for you to, to interact with other people. This is, this is the church gathered together. And if you need to confess something to your brother or sister today, then do so. Or you've acted in arrogance and pride. Confess that before God and for others. And then to all of us, so the answer is, is just simply turn to Jesus. Turn to him. And we have this really perfect opportunity right now um, in communion uh, to, to do this in practice, to turn to Christ. Um, 
if if you if today is the day and you, and you say yeah I believe this for the, like I I believe this you know then your first act in that is to profess it come to the Lord's table take of Jesus broken body we believe this bread is his body uh, it, it symbolizes his broken body for us right that Jesus was broken so that we could be whole right that he healed every part of us spiritually in and out our thinking our doing is whole it's complete it's made righteous Jesus did that through the breaking of his own body and then the cup representing his blood that was shed for us so that we might be forgiven everything that you ever did that you are doing that you ever will do has been covered by the blood of Jesus and in taking the bread and the cup together we profess that this is enough This is what I need. This is sufficient. This is me saying I'm dependent upon Jesus. And so today, maybe it's the first time you say that. Awesome. That's the miracle of God here at work and in his church. And maybe today you're like, I've done this every single week. It doesn't matter. Today is the day again, anew and afresh. We do it again. We proclaim that Jesus is enough. He's sufficient. We proclaim this to a world around us, that he is the long-awaited servant of the Lord, that he is the glorified one by God. He is the holy and righteous one. He is the author of life, and he is risen today. Let's do that together, church. Would you stand? Service, if you come and prepare to service in communion. How we do this is just file down the center aisle. Um, it's always an awkward moment trying to figure out who's going first. So once you figure that out, um, come down, take the bread, dip it into the cup, file back out around the side and back to your seat. And then the band's gonna, uh, we're gonna lead you in, in a couple songs before we close today.